Hello, happy Thursday, and welcome back to another lovely episode of the Unbound and Rewound podcast, a horror podcast where we dissect every bone-chilling book and movie to look deeper within their anatomy. I am Avery, your host, your favorite host it should be. I hope we're doing great this week. I'm coming to you with yet another fun episode. This one is for all my bibliophiles and cinephiles alike because we are comparing a book to the TV show adaptation. But before we get into that discussion, what are we watching? What are we streaming? I'm still streaming The L Word, to no surprise, but I've also watched a few other movies. There was a recent release on Peacock called Sick. It was written by the same screenwriter as the Scream franchise, Kevin Williamson, and that was a pretty interesting movie. Um, I mean, I consider it to be like Scream's cousin, and if you want to know more of what I thought about that movie, you can look on my Letterboxd. I also watched House of Darkness, which is also on my letterbox. if you want to see how I felt about that. That is another 2022 Justin Long movie. He was just booked and busy last year, which was just like 15 days ago. What else have I watched? I mean, I've watched a lot of movies, honestly. And my other movie that I watched this past week was Skinamarink. Now, uh, if you have not heard about that movie, if you don't know what I'm talking about, or if you're contemplating watching it and you have heard about it, go check out the post that I made uh, on my TikTok or my Instagram, either way you prefer, and figure out for yourself if you think it's worth the watch for you. But let me tell you, just prepare to be shaken in your boots. That's all. (laughs) All right. So I, if you're not following any of my social medias, please do, because I want to know what you all are streaming and what you all are watching every week, whether it's a show, a movie, short film, whatever it is, and reading. I want to know what you're reading too. You know, make sure that you you follow me on social media and keep me posted because I want to watch what you all are watching and read what you all are reading. I have exciting news. Now, I mainly did this for myself because I wanted I wanted to rock my own merch and you can say whatever you want about it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have a cute tote bag that says Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast on it with my logo on it. And I'm excited about it. I'm going to have stickers to put on my laptop and around the city. And I am excited to just be able to do it, to see my logo on other things besides my screen. So I that was just such a large ramble, all to say that I have merchandise. And I didn't do it to make money. Like, I don't... I don't care to make the money. I try to make it as cheap as possible for anyone who would like to purchase it. Um, And it can be found on Etsy. You can just find me, Your Horror Podcast, on Etsy. 
Um, I have stickers, tote bags. Um, what else? I feel like I have other. Th- oh, bookmarks. Those books. Those bookmarks are nice too, y'all. They're metal. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So there's bookmarks, and yeah, just go on there, explore. Hopefully, you find something that you like and are able to rep the podcast because the world deserves to know um, what they are missing out on. You know. Now, with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. This fine Thursday, we are discussing the Gillian Flynn novel, Sharp Objects, and we're comparing it to Jean-Marc Vallée's adaptation of it on HBO Max. Now, it was adapted into a series, and the first episode aired in 2018, and this series stars Amy McAdams as well. It has Sydney Sweeney and Sophia Lillis who played in it as well as another HBO or not HBO, um, another Netflix series that I can't think of the name right now. Yeah, so it has a few, you know, recognizable names and faces and it actually got a rating of 92 percent on rotten tomatoes but you know i don't really take into consideration of rotten tomato ratings but for an adaptation of a book it it was pretty good there were of course a few things that were different about the you know between the book and the show but overall among among the world of adaptations, it could have been so much more worse. But of course, before before we even get into the nitty gritty, you know, you all have to know what this book, what the show is about. And so, the story itself follows Camille Preaker as she faces a difficult assignment. That assignment would be returning to her tiny southern hometown to cover the murders of two preteen girls. So for several years, uh, Camille has maintained a very considerable distance from her mother and her half-sister, who she barely knows. Now, on this assignment, as she's in her old bedroom in her family's Victorian mansion, uh, Camille finds herself identifying with the young victims a bit too strongly. She is harboring her own demons and she must unravel the psychological puzzle of her own past if she wants to get the story and survive this homecoming of hers. Thanks Amazon for that synopsis, although I kind of redacted some stuff and put my own twist on it. Jillian Flynn also did Gone Girl and so that's what she's most known for. But Sharp Objects isn't so much of a horror as a thriller, but I think that there are aspects of this story that are horrifying enough, you know? And I back I first read this book back in October. Immediately after I read it, I watched the series as well. So while it's been a little while since I, you know, last read it and watched it, oh, do I have a lot to say on it? And so this will, there really is no spoiler-free version of this episode because I'm just going to get right into it. So hopefully you can listen to it and, you know, without being spoiled. And I'll even try to, like, interject and say, oh, here's a spoiler. 
you know, skip ahead if you want, like whatever, so that you can get through the entire episode because I want you to be able to hear it and uh, want to read it or want to watch the show. One thing that I will say is that I think um, if the story itself sounds good, then it might be better off to watch the series first versus read the book. And I say that because there are a lot of things in the show that just are not depicted in the book the best way that they can be. Of course, you know, the book is the origin, so you want to honor that as you can. The show gives a little bit more of a 360 view of everything that's going on, considering that the book is from Camille's perspective. So you're going to get more of that first person narrator input versus seeing everything else that's going around in the peripherals. And so I think that because of what this book deals with, the show can have a have a little bit more of a holistic commentary on what the subject matter deals with. There are a few general words that I have about the story itself, and then I'll get into um, the differences between the books and the movies and just the overall story itself. I do think that this story in a whole works as a great antithesis to other sides of the feminist scale. While other films and stories harp on the feminine rage, Rightfully so. Don't get me wrong. I love a good feminine rage. But they they harp on this feminine rage that comes with sexual violence and gender violence. I think Gillian Flynn's take on it in this story particularly demonstrates that side of the scale that is often disempowered. And it's talked about a little bit in the book where it's like, oh, if I act out in rage or if I act out in, in sadness and, you know, stuff like that, if I act out with too much emotion externally, then that makes me weak, that makes me a victim. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the three the three main female characters that we see in this story represent three female archetypes that capture the various other ways in which women cope with womanhood and gender violence and everything in between. So Adora, who is Camille and Emma's mother, she immerses herself into her femininity and she uses it to her advantage. However, her femininity was at once used against her when she was growing up because she had a mother who was just so forceful in reinforcing, you know, what Adora was supposed to be in the society that they lived in. Whereas Camille completely rebels and disengages with the femininity that her mother has in mind for her, but she partakes in non-feminine things or quote-unquote non-feminine because the setting of this story really does matter so much in understanding the way that this society, you know, small society, small town operates, everyone's mindsets, everyone's um, social norms and values and beliefs. A small southern town in, I mean, it's not really southern, but it's Missouri. So take that as you will. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's a little southern, I guess you could say. Either way, you know, the small conservative town 
Everyone knows everyone. Everyone has known everyone forever, unless you move to town randomly. And so everybody knows everyone's business, but also everyone is involved in the church and in the community. And they hold their faith to, to the highest of, of grounds. And so Camille completely rejecting her femininity and being sexually promiscuous and relying on alcohol and drugs while also not being the cheery, bright-eyed person that all of the girls and women in the town should be, there were a lot of rumors spread about her and a lot of people who like kind of turned their cheek the other way to her. And then you have Emma, who compartmentalizes all of her emotions and and like herself as a whole so that she doesn't truly suffer at the hands of her mother and really the society as a whole. And she's the real life Hannah Montana, what can I say? Um, at home, you know, she is what Adora wants her to be. She dresses her up in frilly clothes. She'll do her hair. She'll give her a bath. She's literally Adora's life-sized breathing doll. But then when Emma steps out of that house, she she's only 13, but she smokes and she goes to parties with boys and she does drugs and... She's no longer that, you know, like that sweet talking and doe eyed princess that lives in Adora's house. So as I was saying a little bit before, the overall story carries themes of gender roles and stereotypes, and they actually play a part to the investigation, which also translate to this southern slash conservative mentality that we see in both the book and the movie. As the investigation is ongoing and the town folk just talk about it at every event, because in a small town, most times, nothing of serious caliber happens, right? The most that you'll get of illegal action and crimes is like robbery or theft or loitering, like stuff like that. So when murders start taking place in this small town, it's what everybody can talk about. It's the only thing that matters in in social occasions. In both the book and the movie, or I keep saying movie, but in the book and the show, between conversations and passing of town folk at parties and, and, you know, parades and stuff like that, and then you also have conversations with the police and other suspects and whatnot, they constantly talk about how only a man can be responsible for these murders because a woman couldn't be strong enough or sick enough in the head to harm a child the way that the missing girls in town had been. Their teeth had been ripped out. They were strangled. So they're just kind of like, a woman can't rip out those teeth. A woman can't strangle a child to death. A woman... Like, you, like, women are mothers. They would never hurt a child. And it's like, mm, mm, I'm sure. <laughs> so as you get further into the investigation, stories start to circulate around Adora. And Camille finds out that Adora, which I guess this is kind of, this is kind of a spoiler, but not really. But Camille finds out that her mother was, like, tutoring both of the missing slash dead girls 
And so one of the family members was talking about how Adora would try to make one of the girls a little bit more girly than than she actually was because she was a tomboy. She liked to get dirty and play in the woods and liked to climb trees. And so Adora would like paint her nails and stuff. And that just wasn't her. That kind of redirects the investigation a little bit because it's like, well, why, why is Adora doing this? And why, like, you know, why are the little girls who are dead, all their fingernails are painted or whatever. You know, on the topic of gender roles and norms and everything like that, The story also deals with just the trials and politics of womanhood. And so there's various times where you see this. Um, But one one of the main times that really stood out to me was the conversations that Detective Willis and Camille would have. Because they have this conversation of, I don't think it's directly about feminism, but it's kind of talking about like women's rights in a way and like violence against women. And so although Detective Willis does not come outright and say that he's a feminist, he supports women's rights, his views on sexual consent and women's rights led you to believe that he may even be more of a feminist than Camille is, or at least an advocate for women. Because even Camille was kind of pushing back on what the conversation was about. And, you know, in that same conversation, they're talking about, you know, sexual violence. Camille experienced sexual violence when she was in high school, but she does not want to be seen as the victim. She doesn't want to see be seen as weak. And so while Detective Willis is saying, like, if a woman does not have a, a consensual sexual encounter, then that's assault, that's rape, that's this, it's that. And, you know, like, she should seek help. And of course, Camille is like, well, I just think that women should, you know, be able to be sexually liberated. And just because a a woman was too drunk to remember doesn't mean that she didn't enjoy it or something like that. I don't remember the exact words, but it was something along those lines. And so you're thinking like, (laughs) this man understands it better than you do. But then as soon as Camille hurts him... He is real quick to slut shame her. And it just kind of reminds you of how like, it's like when when women do not act off of tradition, it can trigger men. <laughs> like, like, have you ever met a man who is all for women's freedoms and women's rights and everything like that, but as soon as a woman completely burns the image that he had of her in his mind then he's quick to disrespect her character and disrespect who she is as as a whole i've mentioned it in a few episodes before but like the madonna horror complex and it comes up a lot in in shows and movies and books that deal with these similar topics in the story camille is very she relies on sex, drugs, and alcohol 
to kind of cope with what she's going through. As everything just starts to really, really weigh on her, she gets together with a kid named John in the story. And he's also a suspect for the murders because of his connections to the two girls who were killed. And so as they're coming to arrest John, Detective Willis walks in on him and Camille. And instead of checking on her or talking to her and trying to understand why she did what she did or anything like that, he just called her a slut. He's just like, no one feels bad for you. What he said to her was actually very, very vile. Like, he was like, the whole sad girl act, it does not matter. It's it's just an act, and that's why nobody believes you, because you're just a sad slut or something like that, which is crazy for a man to say. But the timing of this was convenient for specifically readers because they knew of Camille's past and how she always used sex and drugs to cope. So our perspective when the situation happens in either the book or the movie, or I mean show, oh my gosh, I keep saying movie. It's like, well, he just doesn't understand her. And so it helps us to to empathize with Camille so much more in these similar situations. And so when you do see that, you know, she's been assaulted by the football team, which in the show, it seems a lot more like an assault than in the book. Because in the book, you're reading about it from Camille's perspective. And so as I said before, she doesn't want to be seen as the victim. She doesn't want to be seen as weak. And so as she's retelling it, she just makes it seem like she was simply like consensually passed around the the football team in one go because that's what she wanted to do, right? But in the show, it's so much more like so much more menacing and like intimidating than it was told in the sto- in the book. But after something, after that happens, no one in the town took the time to understand or even ask Camille about her perspective. They didn't think to ask, oh, did you ask to do this? Did you want to do this? No one thought to ask other cheerleaders, hey, did this happen to you? It just got out that Camille had been doing it and they just ran with it. And so all the other cheerleaders who were taken out into the woods and passed around by the football team out of tradition just continued to live their lives unscathed by these rumors. But And so so the, the town just took the rumors as facts and Camille was branded with various negative opinions. So in the story, like, it's such a great representation of small conservative southern towns. Like... Wow. Yeah. I, that's one thing I'll say is both in the book and in the in the show, like there's it's it's almost like two stories are going on at the same time. There's a story of a small just vile town and then the story of a girl who is from that town. But even like 
outside of this story, as a society, we talk a big deal about how it's important to check in on people struggling with mental health and how, how important it is to care about it and you never know who's suffering. And a lot of the Southern social casualties revolve around caring about one another and praying for them and keeping them in your heart and, and asking them how, how they're doing. But that can just sometimes be an excuse to be in other people's business like oh how how's your mother doing and then you tell them how how your mother's doing and then they run to their friends and start talking about it like it's hot gossip and so in the story people ask about Camille's mental health and they show interest in her being back in town you know they'll they'll say oh I heard about what happened I'm so sorry that that happened to you I I do um I'm so glad that you're back in town I hope you're feeling better like, you know, and then they'll they'll still whisper about her and indulge in those ten year old rumors that they first started when she was still in high school. It it really just kind of drives home that idea of like on the surface of towns like this, it's very wholesome, very sweet. Everyone's tightly tightly knit knitted and it's a great community. But then there's like this under this underground canal of just like toxicity and negativity and you even see like in conversations with Camille a part of them like people will make passes or like jabs at her over stuff that happened to her or what she went through and and as they're talking to you and and making it seem like they care they're also simultaneously kind of making fun of it at the same time. And I mean, quite frankly, after you after you see slash read how this town treats Camille, it's kind of like, well, no wonder she's never gone back. <laughs> I wouldn't blame her. And in terms of mental health, how Camille copes with her dark past is also a very real representation I think Gillian Flynn has a way of of writing very strong female characters. Of course, you see that in Gone Girl. um, And I really didn't expect anything different for this story as well. I think that Gillian Flynn has a very good way of writing a balanced character, right? The character feels like a real person because... They're not all the way good and they're not all the way bad. It's like yin and yang. Like they have equal parts of good and bad. And so like, yeah, obviously you can see the things that caused Camille to act the way that she does and feel the way that she does. And and you understand why she, you know, why she has the certain desires that she has. But do you think that she copes with them well? No, refusing to be seen as the victim because she doesn't want to be weak. It's like you're reading that and you're like, oh, my God, Camille, please, please, like you, you have, please, I'm begging you. And, you know, so her conversation on sexual assault with Richard goes unexpectedly and Camille gets defensive instead. And it's just like you almost just like for me when I was reading it and even watching it. I just kind of like wanted to to just hold her and be like, it's okay. This thing, like being a victim does not make you weak. Being a victim does not, is not a bad thing. 
something something happened to you that was harmful that you didn't deserve and while you're a victim you're currently processing through this and you're working through this and that like that that makes you not weak at all that makes you strong obviously not saying that you have to go through something like that to be stronger no 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 but the power to work through that trauma is is strong in itself but you know also the story another part of the story that i really did like was how it explores the harmful structures of small towns and you know those small southern societies and how money and privilege can protect even the most vile and guiltiest people in that town and so this is a little bit of a of a spoiler so if you don't want to hear it you can skip ahead a little bit but in this town you know Adora's family has been established there for years and years and years and years and years her family has always been a vital source to the operation and economy of this town so she hosts large town gatherings and she donates money and she attends church so you come to find that most people that Richard Willis interrogates or talks to about Adora they talk about how Adora did this for them or does this for the town or helped them to do this and in exchange they pretty much turned a blind eye to it and became complicit in the harm that she was doing behind closed doors and that's that's another that's another reason why the whole idea that small towns are so tightly knitted right it's like yeah you know what's keeping them tightly knitted money money and corruption and you see that in the story and it's no different you know when you have influential people it doesn't even have to be in a small town but when you have influential people and their dark side is exposed to to others they will use their privilege and their money to make sure that their image can be maintained and that they can continue to do what they were doing in the first place. So when we do find this out, it is in episode seven of the show. I'll start talking about the show more specifically now, what I liked and what I didn't like. So in episode seven, first of all, the soundtrack to this, to the entire show, really, the soundtrack was absolutely amazing. But the song that was used at the end of episode 7 was just absolutely perfect. Spoiler! (laughs) In episode 7 particularly, this is when uh, Detective Richard Willis finds that Adora suffers from Munchausen by proxy. And um, it kind of drops the veil that hid Adora's true persona. However, we do see that not only Alan, but the entire town is complicit with Adora's torturous behaviors, particularly with her daughters. At the end of this episode, the song Down in the Willow Garden by the Everly Brothers plays, and the lyrics are about murdering a woman. It's a murder ballad, which didn't know those existed, and they they exist, mainly sung by men about women. And you want to tell me, you know what, I'm going to save that. I'm not going to say that, but I'm just, you know what, it, it does not come to a coincidence, I will say. So the lyrics themselves talk about a son who trusts his father's advice, 
who promises his son that by murdering his pregnant girlfriend, pregnant lover, whatever, that uh, he can, you know, get out of of this responsibility that he did not expect to have of being a father. And so the particular lyrics that were just so prevalent to this episode was, I poisoned that dear little girl. And while this song is playing, you see Alan kind of grappling with the fact that he's been a tool in the harm caused to his daughter. This is at the point where Emma is really suffering from the quote-unquote medicine that Adora has been giving her. And she's honestly on the brink of death. And he's realizing that by turning a blind eye to it, by, by being complicit to it, he has ultimately led to the apple of his eyes death. What's even more unsettling about this scene particularly is you see a memory of him and Emma dancing and they're singing and dancing to this song. So it's like they kind of spoke it into existence, question mark. So with this scene, it kind of stands to be an example of one of the things that I liked about this, about the show compared to the book is that you see more of Alan and it brings a different narrative to the story because in the book you don't Alan just kind of stands as this supportive character for Adora and Adora alone anything that happens to Adora he's supporting her anything that Adora does he supports her he stands by her which you know in the in the show that happens too he does that as well but being able to see a little bit more of of his conversations, hearing his tone, seeing this scene in particular of how he's feeling. Of course, he doesn't say how he's feeling, but you can just see it on his face and the way that the scene was constructed. So it just really helps to give a, a more 360 view of what's going on. And that's something else that I really liked about the the show, of course. Like I said before, the book is from Camille's perspective. So we're not going to get as full of a, of a view of everybody else in the story because, well, we're here for Camille and Camille only. But I think that being able to see the, the bird's eye view of everything in the show kind of it allowed you to empathize and identify with various other parts of the story. Whereas, obviously, in the book itself, you kind of only empathized with Camille. The synopsis of the book, when I read it before I actually got it, it makes Camille's mental health a little bit more significant in terms of before she goes to her hometown, she is only maybe like a week out of the psychiatric hospital. And she had been there. I think she checked herself in. And I don't remember how long she had been in there. But she had a roommate with her. And her roommate ended up offing herself. And so the synopsis makes the story sound like it relies a lot on Camille's psychiatric stay 
But in the book, you don't really... it. You get brief glimpses and whatnot. But not as much as you get in the show. In the show, you see a lot more of Alice and Camille's visit in the hospital. And you see how their relationship was much more than just roommates. As strange as that sounds. <laughs> and you see how Alice's death actually really affected Camille. And that's something that she's still even grappling with as we watch her in the show obviously you know she's still grappling with her own mental health and she's still trying to get better on her own terms with her psyche but now she has even more weight on it because of what she witnessed and I think she she also blames herself a little bit for Alice's death as well so you see that in the show too, whereas you don't you don't really get as much in depth of, of details in regards to this aspect of the story. Something in the show that I did not like, Detective Willis and Camille's relationship, it didn't seem to grow as gradually as the book had positioned it. In the book, there seemed to be more of an attachment between the two and... I think part of that is because where you kind of have a direct line to Camille's thoughts and perspective, you kind of have like free access to how she feels about Detective Willis. And obviously at the very beginning, like she is just talking to him to get more information. But towards the end, she starts to make a few more realizations about how, like, she might actually have feelings for him. But then in the show, you don't really witness those similar feelings or attachment. When, like, Camille talks about how Detective Willis just doesn't reach out to her anymore, doesn't talk to her after what happened, it, like, didn't really hurt as much. And maybe that's because I read the book first and I knew that, that was, that's what was going to happen. I would expect to feel a little bit more attached to their relationship on screen because of, like, just the visuals of it, right? Of the visuals of their, the way that they look into each other's eyes and the way that they may hold each other and, and talk to each other and everything like that. But I just didn't feel that impact. I just was not feeling the vibes there. What really hurt was when they finally come in to arrest Adora, she is on the bathroom floor and you can see all of her scars on her body. It's just like he sees it and he's horrified and he refuses to talk to her anymore. And that's crazy in itself. Like, that goes back to what I was saying about mental health. And how it's like, you act like you care until you don't. Until you see something that just does not fit what you had in your mind for mental health and depression and self-harm and everything like that. And the entire story, Camille does not open herself up to people. You know, when her and Detective Willis are together, there's... she keeps a barrier between them like she keeps her clothes on because she has scars literally all over her body and she is afraid of being that vulnerable with him because of of how scared he might be and that's something that makes her encounter with John a little bit more intimate than than Detective Willis 
quite frankly, when I was reading the book, it was just kind of like, this is a mistake that you're making. I really want you, I really want things to work out with Detective Willis. But in the show, it was the complete opposite, which was crazy to me. Like, I've, like, I switched up and I was like, the, she felt safe with John because they were both outcasts. They had both been branded with those negative rumors and they both could share that experience and, and relate on, on that basis. Camille felt comfortable enough to drop her veil and show John who she really was and he wasn't scared. As soon as it, Richard Willis saw, you know, like what covered her body. He just, between the fact that she cheated on him and what covered her body, he just literally never spoke to her again. And that's just so hurtful, so vile, so so hurtful. (laughs) The other thing that I didn't really like about the show is that it didn't, the ending did not provide a full scope I love when a story gives you the whole one year later, six months later. And I know not all stories are meant to have that. You know, some stories are meant for that cliffhanger, some whatever. I, there was so, like, if if the story had left off as it was, Adora got arrested, Richard Willis never spoke to Camille again, Camille and Emma lived happily ever after, there would still be so much left unanswered and so in the book you do get more of a full scope in terms of what happens with the trial and what happens once Camille and Emma move away and they start living together and Emma starts making new friends but in the show it kind of glides over a little bit of the details that the book gave. And uh, it was like, there were some parts of the book that I would have really liked to see in the show and on screen, but I didn't see them. The reason why I liked it in the story is because it it, it did a really good job of sub- summing everything up without rushing it. Whereas the show kind of felt like it was rushing the ending and trying to like give you everything that you needed to have but also staying on like their time limit and so it was just kind of like okay but what about what about this what happened to this another thing that I did like with the story is that it being in a first person perspective with Camille narrating it Camille created a very morbid and dull way of looking at the world through her eyes and it really added to the overall tone and I felt like it was an accurate representation or depiction of what a depressed mind might look like and Jillian Flynn is pretty well known for like I said her female characters but how their female characters narrate. It's not just a simple, like, point A to point B narration, but you get to know this person better than you get to know people in your real life. It's almost like you open, you literally open up their brain and you have access to every single thought that they have as they're having it. So hearing the way that Camille would describe 
places in her hometown or talk about her memories. It wasn't just, this is what happened to me, but Camille was an unreliable narrator. As as I've you know mentioned before, when she's talking about certain memories, she talks about them in a way that doesn't make her look like a like a victim and just like her memories with her mother her you know like her intentions and stuff like that the way that you may read them can be unreliable to the way that the narrative really is and so I liked having her as a narrator in this story but the story did start off fairly slow I didn't get bored with it don't get me wrong I I kept pushing through and reading it and I didn't have a problem reading it but when you're reading a book you want to be excited to get back to reading it. You want it to be something that you look forward to doing the next chance that you can do it right. Those are my favorite types of books where I read it in the morning and then all day I think about getting to read it later at night so that I can learn more and read more about it and whatever. But with this book, I really didn't get to that point until about halfway through. And once I got to that point of like things that were interesting, okay, cool, we're, you know, we're getting somewhere. And part of that reason is that because the story is told from Camille's perspective, there was like a tension built around just simply finding out who Anna was and what kind of character she was. We didn't get, we didn't learn about Emma in the book right off the bat, like right as Camille met her. But in the movie, we do see a little bit more of who Emma is uh, because we're able to see situations where Camille might not necessarily be present. So we can see Emma decorating her dollhouse. We can see her skating with her friends. We can see her flirting with boys, whatever. Emma was part, was one of the most interesting parts of the story. And in the book, you you finally get to like learn about her and, and see the sister-to-sister interaction the first third of the book. It's not something that completely turned me off from the book, but I marked it as kind of like a dislike mainly for those of you who don't like slow burning books you like a book to start right off with like a bang or or something that hooks you that's definitely not necessarily this story and then the very last thing that I did not like about the the book itself is that the synopsis and I said this a little bit before But the synopsis uh, makes her psychiatric hospital visit seem like a vital part of the plot. Like, it's something that's going to be referred to a lot. And it's it's something that we'll learn more about and see kind of how it plays out in the current setting of the story. But it's mentioned as if it's a big secret. And part of that could be because it's from Camille's perspective. So she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to think about it. But in the movie, we see it so much more. I mean, there's like a whole half of an episode dedicated to seeing this hospital stay and seeing exactly what happened. And even every episode, there's like like little clips and hints to 
her hospital stay and how it has impacted her and like seeing Alice. But in the story, you don't get as in depth. And so that's something that I really, I really wish that we could have seen in the book. There is another book that does this too. They mentioned something in the story. Oh, I think it's Such Pretty Flowers. I reviewed it on my Instagram. I didn't do a whole episode on it. It publishes February 7th of this year, I think. In the summary, it talks about how the protagonist falls in love with the main suspect of an investigation, but that's like not even half of what the plot really is about. And, you know, of course, like it's marked as like a romance, but there's really nothing romantic. Like there's the evolution of this romantic relationship that they mention and talk about in depth in the summary is not as romantic as you would think it would be. It's it's so underdeveloped. And that's how I feel about the whole psychiatric hospital visit. Like when you like when you mention something in the summary, you would think that it would literally play a very vital part of the story. And in the book, I mean Camille very well could have just been depressed with a tendency of self-harm and suicidal ideation the story could have continued but the hospital visit part of the story um just I don't know I just feel like it wasn't touched on as much as it could have been but thank god for the show because without the show we would have never known on Goodreads, I did rate this book a 4 out of 5 stars. I genuinely do like the story. I liked the book and I liked the show. I feel like in terms of adaptations, it really can't get any better than this. Maybe it can, but it was pretty good. And so I do hope that if you have read this book or heard of this book, then you watch the watch the show, read the book, Um, Because it really is good. And if you were a fan of Gone Girl, then you probably would be a fan of Sharp Objects. Now, if you want to see my official review of what I said um, initially after I finished reading the book, you can find that on Goodreads at AveryCOF. You can also find me on Instagram at Your Horror Podcast. And that's also on my TikTok, Your Horror Podcast, as well as my Twitter your horror podcast get it because this is your horror podcast your go-to horror podcast also if you would like to be a guest on the show you can find that link to the form in the show notes below as well as links to the to my amazon wish list if you would like to gift a little something no pressure though and then of course there will also be a link to the etsy shop where you can get some stickers if you'd like some stickers a little tote bag because you can always use another tote bag or a bookmark there's nothing harmful with having a bookmark so yeah thank you so much for tuning in this week i'm very excited because next week is something that i'm starting brand new Um, i'm going to dissect a short film which will be fun because i've never done that on the podcast but there are so many great horror short films and i feel like i need to take advantage of that opportunity especially because youtube is filled to the brim with horror short films 
So look forward to that. Make sure you keep up to date with everything revolving around the podcast on my Instagram. And there you will be able to see what short film particularly that I am reviewing so that you can watch it yourself and follow along as I talk about it next Thursday. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope to catch you next episode.